Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover prevention of early onset group B strep disease in newborns. Group B streptococci, also known as strep agalactiae, emerged as an important cause of perinatal morbidity and mortality in the 1970s. Between 10 and 30% of all pregnant women are colonized with GBS in the vagina or rectum. The organism can cause maternal urinary tract infection, amnionitis, endometritis, sepsis, or rarely meningitis. Invasive group B strep disease in the newborn is characterized primarily by sepsis and pneumonia, or less frequently meningitis. Vertical transmission of GBS during labor or delivery may result in invasive infection in the newborn during the first week of life. This is also known as early onset group B streptococcal infection. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. National guidelines, which have been in place since the 1990s, have resulted in almost an 80% reduction in the incidence of early-onset neonatal sepsis due to GBS. However, these guidelines have had no effect on late-onset neonatal disease. The primary risk factor for early-onset group B streptococcal infection is maternal intrapartum rectovaginal colonization with GBS. Other clinical risk factors include gestational age less than 37 weeks, prolonged rupture of membranes defined as greater than 18 hours, intraamniotic infection or choriamnionitis, young maternal age, and black race. Neonates born to women who have previously given birth to a GBS-infected newborn or who have heavy GBS colonization during the index pregnancy should be treated during each pregnancy. Again, women who have had a prior child affected with GBS are called forever carriers and will always receive intrapartum prophylaxis. However, GBS colonization of the urine resulting in bacteria is pregnancy specific. In other words, a patient who has had GBS bacteria in a previous pregnancy does not mean that she may be colonized once again in the index pregnancy. All right, now we're going to get into the specifics of who requires treatment and who does not for antibiotic prophylaxis for GBS in just a minute. But let's make a quick statement here first, because it's really important. The ACOG committee strongly recommends against administering intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis to a woman who has ruptured membranes greater than 18 hours when a culture result has been obtained for that pregnancy between 35 and 37 weeks and is negative. So once again, despite the fact that she may be ruptured greater than 18 hours, if a GBS rectovaginal culture was obtained in that pregnancy between 35 and 37 weeks and it was negative, antibiotics should not be given. However, antibiotics should be administered after 18 hours of rupture only when GBS culture results are not known. 
All right, so that gets into an important point. Remember that there's two criteria for who should get intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis for GBS. There is the risk-based algorithm and the culture-based. Remember that ACOG and the CDC recommend universal GBS rectovaginal culture obtainment at 35 to 37 weeks. However, if there's unknown GBS status at the onset of labor or the culture was not done or it's incomplete or results are unknown, then any of the following risk factors are considered significant and appropriate for GBS antibiotic prophylaxis. Here are the risk factor given. Delivery at less than 37 weeks of gestation. Amniotic membrane rupture greater than or equal to 18 hours. Intrapartum temperature greater than or equal to 100.4, which is 38 degrees Celsius, or having an intrapartum nucleic acid amplification test that is positive for GBS. Remember, we're talking about GBS cultures, which require about 48 hours of incubation and sensitivities in some cases. However, when patients present in labor without a previous culture being obtained, then intrapartum nucleic acid amplification testing can be done as a surrogate, and those who test positive require intrapartum antibiotic treatment. In addition to those intrapartum risk factors, we've already covered some other risk factors which mandates intrapartum GBS prophylaxis. And here they are. A previous infant with invasive GBS disease, having GBS bacteria during any trimester of the current or the index pregnancy. Those are the two in addition to the intrapartum risk factors that require intrapartum prophylaxis. So again, here they are. Delivery at less than 37 weeks, membrane rupture greater than 18 hours without a resulted GBS culture, intrapartum temperature greater than 100.4, and intrapartum nucleic acid amplification test for GBS, having a previous infant with invasive GBS, or GBS bacteria during the index pregnancy. All right, we just covered briefly who should receive antibiotic prophylaxis, but let's talk about when intrapartum GBS prophylaxis is not indicated. First, is colonization with GBS during a previous pregnancy, unless there's an indication for GBS in the current pregnancy. GBS bacteria, as we've already discussed, in a previous pregnancy when it's not found in this current index pregnancy. Next is a cesarean delivery that's performed before the onset of labor or in a woman with intact amniotic membranes, regardless of GBS colonization. Next is when there's a negative vaginal and a rectal GBS screening culture, which was obtained at 35 to 37 weeks in the current pregnancy. Regarding the specific intrapartum antibiotic prophylactic agents, penicillin remains the agent of choice for intrapartum prophylaxis with ampicillin as an acceptable alternative. Now, in view of increasing rates of resistance of GBS to erythromycin, which has been reported in up to 32% or more for invasive isolates, erythromycin is no longer recommended. So that's a clinical pearl. Group B strep may show either inducible or intrinsic resistance to clindamycin. So inducible resistance is detected by the D-test, which tests the isolate for resistance to both clindamycin 
as well as to erythromycin. Clindamycin continues to be recommended only if the isolate is sensitive to both clindamycin and erythromycin, or if the isolate is sensitive to clindamycin and the Z-zone test result for inducible resistance is negative. Intravenous administration is the route recommended for intrapartum GBS prophylaxis. There is no oral or intramuscular regimen which has been shown to be effective. Now, in cases in which the inducible resistance is seen or sensitivity has ruled out clindamycin as an option, then we're left as an antibiotic prophylaxis of vancomycin, that is 1 gram IV every 12 hours. Again, if the isolate is not sensitive to both clindamycin and erythromycin, then vancomycin 1 gram IV every 12 hours is recommended until delivery. As the recommended primary antibiotic in patients who are not at high risk of anaphylaxis, the dose of penicillin G is 5 million units IV as the initial loading dose and then 2.5 million units every 4 hours until delivery. Ampicillin can be given as 2 grams IV as the initial dose, then 1 gram IV every 4 hours. In patients who have an anaphylactic reaction, another antibiotic is given, but for those who do not have a true anaphylactic reaction, then ANSEF can be substituted in that case. ANSEF is given as 2 grams IV as an initial load, and then 1 gram IV every 8 hours. Regarding the obstetrical management, according to the college for a patient with GBS colonization, the committee has insufficient data to support or discourage the use of scalp electrodes or fetal scalp and blood pH determinations in women known to have GBS colonization. Furthermore, the risks of membrane stripping in GBS colonized women have not been well investigated. So according to the college, because data are insufficient, it cannot be encouraged or discouraged in this time. Regarding neonatal management, is considered best practice or preferred to have the mother receive four hours or more of intravenous penicillin, ampicillin, or ANSEF before delivery when indicated. Now, of course, we can't always guarantee that the patient will have at least those four hours of antibiotic exposure, but that is what's preferred. Okay, as we come to the end of the podcast, let's present one interesting clinical scenario. If a patient presents to labor and delivery with symptoms of labor or preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, let's say at 30 weeks and has a GBS culture obtained at that initial presentation and it's negative, does that require a repeat test later? Well, a negative GBS screen result is considered valid for five weeks. So if a patient with preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes is entering labor and had a negative GBS screen more than five weeks prior, she should be re-screened and managed according to the algorithm at that time. Hey, this wraps up our podcast covering the committee opinion from the college, which is number 485 on the prevention of early onset group B streptococcal disease in newborns. We'll see you next time.